Welcome to Digital Yom, a podcast about living a symbolic life in a technological age. Man cannot stand a meaningless life. I'm Jason Smith, Jungian analyst and your host for this show. And in this episode, we explore the symbolism of one's true name and the challenges that we meet in learning how to hear it. It's the human soul. That's the buried treasure. The act of naming is, like baptism, extremely important as regards the creation of personality. For a magical power has been attributed to the name since time immemorial. To know the secret name of a person is to have power over him. A well-known example of this is the tale of Rumpelstiltskin, In an Egyptian myth, Isis permanently robs the sun god Ra of his power by compelling him to tell her his real name. Therefore, to give a name means to give power, to invest with a definite personality or soul. There is a sermon by the minister and writer George MacDonald in which he explores the symbolism of one's true name. It's a sermon based on a passage from the book of Revelation, which goes like this. To him that overcometh, I will give a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Now, MacDonald is an interesting figure. He was a minister in the Congregational Church, a poet, an author, and one of the pioneers of modern fantasy literature. He was a mentor to Lewis Carroll, whom he encouraged in the publication of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. And he was a major inspiration to C.S. Lewis, who even made MacDonald one of the characters in his book, The Great Divorce. And in addition to these two authors, the list of writers who count George MacDonald as an influence includes W.H. Auden, Thomas Merton, Flannery O'Connor, Ray Bradbury, J.R.R. Tolkien, Neil Gaiman, and Madeleine Langle. C.S. Lewis considered MacDonald to have a genius for mythopoeic art, the creation of myths. And there is unquestionably a strong symbolic sensibility that runs through his writings. The symbol, MacDonald declared, is the highest mode of conveying the deepest 
truth. And you can feel this sensibility in his interpretation of that passage I read a moment ago from the book of Revelation. And the primary symbol MacDonald focuses on from that passage is that of the new name. To him that overcometh, I will give a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. The name, he writes, is not the ordinary kind by which we identify ourselves and each other. That is a mere label and has nothing essential in it. It allows us to differentiate one person from another, but it only relates to a superficial level of the person. It is not the true name. The true name, MacDonald states, is one which expresses the character, the nature, the being, the meaning of the person who bears it. It is the person's own symbol, their soul's picture, in a word the sign which belongs to that person and to no one else. The name written in the white stone and received from God, then, is a symbol of the mystery of individuality. The character, the nature, the being, the meaning of the person who bears it. It's very hard to get a sense of this because we can't think in any precise way about a mystery. And that's exactly why we need to have a symbol, which is, according to Jung's definition, as I've said many times before on this podcast, the best possible expression for something that cannot be expressed in any other way. It's doubly difficult when it is we ourselves who are the mystery we're trying to think about. This is because it is impossible for us to observe ourselves from an outside objective standpoint. Without some mirror in which we can catch our own reflection, we would be forever stuck in the echo chamber of our own minds. And again, this is where the symbol comes to our aid. It makes visible, so to speak, that which is invisible to direct observation. And it's Jung's concept of the self that is directed toward this experience of the mystery of individuality. The self, remember, is not the same as what we call I. It's not the ego. Nor is it what we mean when we speak of myself in the ordinary sense of the word. This can be quite confusing, and one of the conventions that Jungian psychology uses to distinguish between the different senses of the word self is to write one, the ordinary sense, with a lowercase s, and the other, the larger mystery of our being, with a capital S. Marie-Louise von Franz gives a nice, concise description of this latter sense of the word. And she writes, For Jung, the self written with a capital is meant to be that supraordinate, inner, 
unknown divine center of the psyche which we have to explore all our lifetime. Nobody knows what the self in him or her is or what it wants. The only way to adequately speak about the self is to speak metaphorically or poetically. We can only talk about what it's like, but we can never really say exactly what it is. And this is further complicated by the fact that Jung's concept of the self is really a general category meant to describe a whole host of different psychological phenomena. It's an explanatory idea, but when the self appears in symbolic form, for instance, when it appears in our dreams, in mythological and religious imagery, or in the works of the creative imagination, it appears in a specific form, in a particular image. The new name given by God would be just such a symbolic image. And a symbol like this, frankly, is much more meaningful than the generic and more abstract term self. And this is because it gives expression to the particular, the unique, the singular way in which the self manifests within an individual life. To him that overcometh, I will give a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. This name we could say, is what we are called to be. It is the expression of the deep pattern of our being that unfolds through the course of our life, so long as we bring consciousness to the process and a commitment to nurture that unfolding. As von Franz states, if we look back over life, we can see there is a pattern, as if the self with a capital, has a plan for us, a kind of destiny. In the rest of this episode, I want to highlight some of the key experiences that are associated with receiving our true name. And the first thing to note is that it changes our relationship to the surrounding social world. To have a name is a differentiation of oneself from what Jung calls somewhat disparagingly the undifferentiated and unconscious herd. It is to begin to rise up out of our identity with the mass, our original unconscious immersion in the ideas, beliefs, and even emotions of the group, and to take ownership in a sense, of our own souls. This is the crucial first step in the direction of one's name, but it has the effect of setting us against the inertia of the crowd, which all too often expresses a stubborn resistance to any kind of change. And so the next thing that we're likely to encounter 
is that resistance, that old tug at our ankles, to paraphrase Mary Oliver's poem, The Journey. While we are still learning to listen to the sound of the name that is being spoken to us, spoken in us, while it is still a misty idea forming somewhere on the periphery of our awareness, we learn to hold it back, to keep it as our own, perhaps guilty, secret. And we're wise to do so early on in the process. The poet David White describes the danger we face at this stage. If you ever want ammunition to shoot down any secret ambition, he writes, ask others in an abstract kind of way what they think of your plans. We keep the most precious things secret, he goes on, exactly because we are not sure they would stand up to scrutiny in the light. A heartfelt desire is like a seed that needs the dark and the cold before it will germinate. And this, then, leads into the third experience of our true name. Loneliness. To have a secret that we keep from the world keeps us, in some sense, from the world, too. But this loneliness is not some accidental event, nor is it a symptom of something gone awry. It is an entry into a fundamental experience of being human. Ultimately, and precisely in the deepest and most important matters, writes the poet Rilke, we are unspeakably alone. In his sermon, George MacDonald suggests that loneliness is the very nature of our particular individual relationship to God. He writes, And for each, God has a different response. With every person, he has a secret, the secret of the new name. In every person, there is a loneliness, an inner chamber of peculiar life into which God only can enter. I say not it is the innermost chamber, but a chamber into which no brother, nay, no sister can come. Jung is in complete agreement with this insight of MacDonald's, though he would be more likely to use the psychological language of the self, with a capital S, in place of the religious language of God. And for Jung, there are two species of loneliness, one in which we are estranged from our deepest nature, from the self, from God, from our true name, and one in which we live out of that nature. Neurosis, he says, is a kind of loneliness, one that stems from feeling alienated from the root of our being. And we do damage to ourselves when we seek to be rid of that loneliness by trying to return prematurely to some preferred state of pleasant well-being 
Rather, we should let it lead us more fully into our life, into our very souls. And about this experience, he says, it is a loneliness that cannot be quenched by anything else. You can be a member of a society with a thousand members and you are still alone. That thing in you which should live is alone. Nobody touches it. Nobody knows it. You yourself don't know it. But it keeps on stirring. It disturbs you. It makes you restless. And it gives you no peace. That thing in you which should live, of course, is the new name. And as that quote I just read from Jung makes clear, sometimes the new name speaks itself to us through our suffering, through our wounds. They, too, make their contribution to our identity. They, too, are part of what makes us who we are. And this is the fourth point that I want to draw attention to here. And I'd like to do that by turning to an excerpt from Homer's The Odyssey, which illustrates this relationship of our wounds to our identity. This scene is from Book 19, when Odysseus has finally made his way home to Ithaca. He doesn't reveal himself right away, but disguises himself as a swineherd. And as this scene starts, he's about to have his feet washed, a common custom for greeting a guest into one's home. And the person who is going to wash him is the old nurse who raised him from the time he was a baby. So here's the scene. The old woman took up a burnished basin she used for washing feet and poured in bowls of fresh cold water before she stirred in hot. Odysseus, sitting full in the firelight, suddenly swerved round to the dark, gripped by a quick misgiving. Soon as she touched him, she might spot the scar. The truth would all come out. Bending closer, she started to bathe her master. Then, in a flash, she knew the scar. That old wound made years ago by a boar's white tusk when Odysseus went to Parnassus out to see Autolycus and his sons. That scar. As the old nurse cradled his leg and her hands passed down, she felt it, knew it, suddenly let his foot fall, dropped it down in the basin. The bronze clanged, tipping over, spilling water across the floor. Joy and torment gripped her heart at once. Tears rushed to her eyes. Voice choked in her throat. She reached for Odysseus's chin and whispered quickly, Yes, yes, you are Odysseus. Oh, dear boy, I couldn't know you before, not till I touched the body of my king. It is not the superficialities of living that reveal who we are. 
It is not social status, a work title, the books we've read, or the right friends. It is what we have been through. It is what's left behind after we have passed through the testing fires of life. It is the scars we carry, the ones we acknowledge, the ones we own, even love. And we love them because we know that despite the suffering they brought to us, the gifts they left behind are things we would never trade away. Wisdom, compassion, meaning, love. In the passage I read from the Odyssey, I left out the extended description of how Odysseus received the wound that gave him the scar on a hunting excursion with his grandfather, Autolycus. And interestingly enough, it's in that same passage that we learn that it was the grandfather who gave Odysseus his name. As we read in the story, Autolycus speaks these words, Give the boy the name I tell you now. Just as I have come from afar, creating pain for many, men and women across the good green earth, so let his name be Odysseus, the son of pain, a name he'll earn in full. Here, name and wound are inextricably linked. All of this, I would say, points to this symbol of the name given by God as an expression of vocation. And that's the key takeaway here. Our true name, in other words, the name by which we are to be called, is also the name of our calling. What is it, in the end, asks Jung, that induces a person to go their own way and to rise out of unconscious identity with the mass as out of a swathing mist? And his answer is vocation. Anyone with a vocation, he says, hears the voice of the inner person, or, I might suggest, the inner name. Each person's vocation, like each person's true name, is unique. But perhaps there is something general that can be said about it, despite that truth. As I said earlier, our particular scars carry with them their own gifts. And these gifts, says George MacDonald, are not meant to be merely our personal possessions but offered back into the world for the benefit of others. There is, he writes, a chamber in God himself, into which none can enter but the one, the individual, the peculiar person, out of which chamber that person has to bring revelation and strength for his brethren. This is that for which we are made to reveal the secret things of the Father. We each 
have our own particular relationship with the mystery of existence. This is our true name. And only if we are conscious of this relationship and allow it to work on us, to challenge us, to deepen us, and to transform us, do we really receive that name. But then there is one more task to perform. Whatever treasure we have gained must be brought back in some way to the collective, to the very world to which we had found ourselves in opposition not so long ago. The boon that we have been granted, teaches the great mythologist Joseph Campbell, must redound to the renewing of the community, the nation, the planet, or the ten thousand worlds. I'll be back in just a minute with this week's parting words. You'll find a list of all the sources used in this week's episode in the show notes. You'll also find links to connect with me on social media, as well as for my book, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life, available from Chiron Publications. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting the production of this show. You can do so for as little as the cost of a cup of coffee at Buy Me a Coffee. You'll even find some extras for this show posted there from time to time. Just hit the Support the Show link in the show notes. Thank you very much. Now here are this week's parting words. I want to give one more nod to George MacDonald here. In this quote from the sermon that I've been referring to in this episode, MacDonald reminds us that receiving our true name is the work of a lifetime. It's certainly not something that can be achieved through thinking or planning or even imagining. It is the work of becoming. We cannot even understand the name being spoken to us until we embody it with our whole being. In Jungian language, we would say that the name is the expression of our wholeness. And here's what MacDonald says. It is the blossom, the perfection, the completion that determines the name. But the tree of the soul, before its blossom comes, cannot understand what blossom it is to bear, and could not know what the word meant, which, in representing its own unarrived completeness, named itself. Such a name cannot be given until the person is the name. And to this, I would just add a commentary from the Sufi mystic Rumi, who says, No one knows our name until our last breath goes out. 
Until next time.